This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. Hope is imbued with a positive vision of what the future could look like. And so our students that are coming to study forest management are coming because they grew up in a logging family where they hunted and they foraged and they fished and they know the importance of healthy rivers and healthy waterways. Uh, But then we have students that are here because they know West Virginia is, is a special spot for outdoor recreation. And they want to come here to be able to live the lifestyle of working hard and playing hard or harder. And so our students are diverse in that sense of their kind of lived experiences. Today's episode comes to you from the Mountain Hydrology Lab at West Virginia University. Our guest is Nicholas Zeg, or Nico as he is known. Nico is an associate professor of forest hydrology and is an avid kayaker down the steep creeks and rivers of central Appalachia. In 2009, Nico founded the Mountain Hydrology Lab at West Virginia University. Nico has been working with his students at the Mountain Hydrology Lab and with American Whitewater to define the density of whitewater runs in the United States and how the seasonality and access of these runs have and will alter as climate change continues to influence temperature and moisture patterns and then how Appalachia, specifically in West Virginia, can prepare and adjust for these changes. I have a co-host for this episode. Dylan Pinnock is a paddler and river media producer based in North Atlanta, and he is deeply familiar with the river and boating culture of Appalachia. He is the face and voice of River Company Outfitters on TikTok and Instagram, and the host of My Favorite River Podcast. This is what Dylan sounds like. Yeah, because it actually snowed up there after all that rain came through last night. I invited Dylan to join me for this episode because Dylan provides insights about the rivers and flows of Appalachia. To begin this conversation with Nico Zeg from West Virginia University, we start off with introductions and explanations of the Mountain Hydrology Lab. My name is Nicholas Zeg. And you go by Nico? And I often go by Nico. Yeah, I think most people know me as Nico at this point in my life. Are you are you a doctor or no? I have a PhD, which makes me a doctor, but I'm a voter first. <laughs> And uh, and then tell us, you're, prof- you're a professor at the university. Tell us about that. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm actually a technical term. I'm an associate professor of forest hydrology at West Virginia University. And where is that located? Um, we are located in Morgantown, West Virginia, which is uh, northern West Virginia, about 10 miles from the Pennsylvania border. And you, I think uh, to say it right, you run the Mountain Hydrology Lab. Can you explain this lab? Yes, I'm the I'm the director of the Mountain Hydrology Lab, um, and it is a place where um, you know like-minded people that focus on water and hydrology and um, ecosystems and watersheds um, can rally under an umbrella of organization. And so the lab itself is comprised of me and and various graduate students and, and undergrads that are all working towards understanding water resources and water security in mountain environments. And does this mean? that you might teach classes like other topics and then students can access the lab and use that resource to support their classwork? Basically 50% of my position is doing research and the other half of my time is around teaching. And there is a direct pathway between teaching and research where I engage with students to, you know, to, to work with them on the research process. But my teaching is research informed. So the work that I'm working on for research is very much part of the classes that I teach. 
And a lot of my classes are problem-based and experiential. It's not like you show up and I just lecture for hours and you read a textbook and take exams and that sort of thing. Um, it's about, okay, here's a problem and we're going to work together as a class and use research and, and data and uh, existing knowledge to figure out how to solve this problem. So tell me this also, like I think of a lab and I think of a room with all these chemistry tables and beakers and all this is, do you actually have a room or is this more conceptual and the rivers on the landscape are the lab? Yeah, I do have a lab. Much of my work earlier in my career at WVU um, dealt with water quality and geochemistry and isotopes and all sorts of things that you would analyze in a chemistry lab. Um, but over time, um, it's become clear to me that there are other kinds of questions that need to be answered that aren't as analytical as what can be done in a chemistry lab. And so, you know, my work is about facilitating people becoming agents of change in their communities and in their watersheds. And so the lab is a physical space and the students that are fired up to do chemistry and analytical work can do it. But it's also a, a physical space where we can have conversations, we can work on solving problems together and, you know, plan our lab meetings, which um, often have happened on the river. Today's episode is sponsored by AED One Stop Shop. AED One Stop Shop has been a vendor member of AOA, the American Outdoors Association Conference, for 10 years, supplying AEDs to river outfitters. AED One Stop Shop is providing a bulk order discount on their AED bundles right now that allows for complete deployment of AEDs throughout your river outfitting company. This bundle includes the HeartSign Samaritan AED, which is 2.4 pounds and is the most tolerant to dust and water. This bundle also includes trauma shears, gloves, shaving razor, and a protective carrying case. To gain this discount, use the link in our show notes, on our website, or in our Instagram link tree to hit the landing page for AED One Stop Shop. Hey, this is Sam. I'm driving a 2023 Nissan Rogue. This is a four-door, all-wheel drive SUV. It has five seatbelts and a large cargo space on the back. Great car to load up with friends, family, and get to the river with all your gear. It has a high profile. You can see up and through traffic. It has a strong engine, a smooth, consistent shifting with the transmission. Really solid car. Feels really safe in traffic with weight and without weight. The all-wheel drive adds a lot for the traction and for the handling and the performance. You can find your Denver area Nissan dealers online, www.nissanusa.com. So I want to read this description about the hydrology lab that I found. In this lab, we focus on all aspects of water resources with an emphasis on the impacts and implications of environmental change and climate change on freshwater security, access, environmental and social justice in mountain regions. This lab is an opportunity to rethink the relationship between people, power, environment, and water to create more just and equitable economy-based sustainable practices. One of, one of the most important questions and one of my favorite questions here on the River Radius is to, to ask people about their own relationships. So this thing, this lab is talking about relationships with rivers. What is, as you, as Nico, uh, what is your personal relationship with rivers? Um, rivers have, have guided my entire life. The first kayak I ever built was with a stack of wood that I found in my basement. It was like 400 year old white Oak 
hardwood flooring and I framed a kayak out of it when I was probably eight, you know, it couldn't float. It didn't have walls, but it was a frame uh, of it. And so, you know, in reflection, uh, rivers and water have really been part of my life and how I experience life. And uh, the older I get, the more I understand that seeing the world through this lens of water is what excites me to be alive. And in a place like West Virginia, where we could simultaneously have one of the oldest, uh, most diverse forests on the planet, side-by-side mountaintop mining, where they blow the top off of mountains to extract coal, you have to kind of rectify these, these challenges, these dichotomies. And seeing the world through this lens of water allows me to um, to appreciate, but also to be guided by the work uh, and the knowledge needed to, to kind of move the world forward. So my entire life has been situated around water and rivers. And I'm fortunately be, uh, you know, married to Sarah uh, Jansen's egg, who is also a lifelong kayaker and, and, and raft guide. And so we have situated our life around rivers. And that's what brought us to West Virginia is access to rivers that could be boated all year round. And so, yeah, water, water has been not only, um, is not only a, a teacher, but it's also a guide, kind of a roadmap to our lives. And it's wintertime right now and it's cold where you are. Are you, I mean, I think there's a lot of boating going on right now. Are you out boating right now? <laughs> there's a lot of boating going on right now. You know, in, in winter in, in central Appalachia where West Virginia is, puddings can be frozen over. There could be ice shelves, uh, you know, going through, through rapids, um, but uh, you can boat all year round here. Um, it's just a matter of what you're willing to tolerate and what brings you joy. And so, yeah, um, one of my favorite creeks is is running right now, Fikes Creek in the headwaters of, of the Big Sandy. And there's a whole crew that's rallying. Um, and I looked at our interview on the calendar and I looked at flows and said, okay, I've committed. <laughs> I've committed to the interview. <laughs> well, thanks for sticking with the commitment. So let's talk about the research you're doing. And th- that's a big piece of this conversation that we're going to have today because you're doing some pretty, I would say, significant and really interesting research around climate change and rivers. Can you explain the research that you're that you're doing? Yeah, let's start there. Yeah. Meeting the definition of sustainability requires um, having healthy communities, healthy environments, and healthy economies. And much of our economy, um, the local to global scale economies, are are really based on this one-way relationship of where we extract from the environment that provides our raw resources for everything we consume, you know, from food to electricity to clothes, um, to plastic to make boats and, and so on and so forth. And so what our lab is trying to do is rethink this relationship between the ecosystems, the people dependent upon those ecosystems, um, and how we can use this change in relationship to create healthy economies that don't disproportionately impact communities. And so our work is situated around understanding how water moves through the atmosphere, through the forest, through the soils, and through the watersheds and rivers, uh, the water cycle. Um, but we don't just stop at the science of of watershed and hydrologic processes. We really situate our work within the needs of the communities. In, in the description of the Mountain Hydrology Lab, um, you read that word power. Um, and what we think about with power is how are decisions made? And who makes those decisions and who are they making decisions for? 
And so if we're going to move the needle on vulnerability uh, towards resilience and sustainability, um, we know that um, there has to be a, a diverse group of people that are asking the questions and developing the policies um, and, and the economic development. And so while I'm trained as an earth scientist that, and, uh, you know, that looks at um, how the physics of water and the distribution of water our work is very much situated in communities um, that have their own type of knowledge and their own expertise. And so in the Mountain Hydrology Lab and the Center for Resilient Communities, which is another group here at WVU that I work with, we situate our work within um, diversifying expertise. And community members are experts in their lived experiences. And so we engage with community members to be part of that knowledge creation. We step back and relinquish control over the research agenda um, and say, what are your needs? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And how can we bring our knowledge to the table that can then be brought to, uh, to the table with your knowledge and then create new knowledge and new data and new types of tools you know, ultimately to figure out uh, meaningful solutions that work on the landscape in places like Appalachia that is often blamed for issues like climate change, yet we we are exposed to power dynamics outside of our control that dictates our future. And so in the Mountain Hydrology Lab and in classes at WVU, we are trying to figure out how to diversify scientific knowledge and understanding, but also decision-making that uses that information. So talk a little bit more about how you engage with communities and who you're talking with and who's helping to engage from the community. What became very clear working around water challenges in Appalachia, you know, folks in the hills and hollers of, of West Virginia and all of Appalachia have a tremendous amount of knowledge and insight on how their rivers and their creeks and their watersheds work and what is threatening their livelihoods around water, but also what provides opportunity um, you know, to increase quality of life and, and, and livelihood. And so what this looks like, for example, going to the Cheat River watershed, Communities in the Cheat are highly vulnerable to flooding, um, especially with the more intense rainfalls that we're experiencing. And so what we do is we go to the communities, you know, town halls and community meetings, you know, household interviews and understand what the community members are challenged by and, and what they're thinking. One of the ways that we do this is we, we make maps and analyze data as a starting point to understand what these communities or these watersheds look like from like these published data sets that like federal and state governments produce. You know, which houses are vulnerable to flooding, for example. You can get that information from FEMA. And we'll make these maps and we'll bring these maps to community meetings and we'll be like, okay, here is a map of what the 30,000 foot perspective of your community and your river and your watershed look like. This is how FEMA or the US Geological Survey or whoever um, sees you, what's wrong with that? And community members you know, stand around a map and be like, well, this house is no longer there or this house has never flooded in the seven generations that my family has lived here um, or this you know, creek that never used to flood now uh, floods all of the time. And so the community members are breaking this data, this knowledge that was created through the scientific process 
Um, and then with the community, we kind of recreate new knowledge that then we will update the map with and then use that for, um, you know, decision making, like where to go next or how do we move the needle on vulnerability? When you're looking at rivers and how things are changing with climate change, what are the categorical changes you're looking for? And in that asking that question, I, I'm curious, like how you're layering in that information from those local communities when they can express to you things about this house does flood, this one actually doesn't flood, or what their needs are, what their interests are. What what are these categorical changes that you're trying to identify and understand in your research that helps me, you, local people there? Yeah, there are different types of indicators that that we use. My work is very much situated in forested watersheds and that are then disturbed through deforestation or development or surface mining for coal or insect defoliation, um, what whatnot. Um, and so we will um, take measurements, for example, on how how much water different types of trees are using now. And then we will use models to understand how that water use will impact how much water is being transpired back to the atmosphere versus how much water is going to run off to fill creeks, streams, and, and rivers. Um, so that's an example. So then what we would do is we would look at where these watershed changes um, are happening and what that means for how much water is running off that then could impact the downstream community, meaning that if a forest change from a deciduous hardwood forest to uh, a coniferous forest, uh, more water is being used by that forest throughout the year. And so what that could mean is less water available for that drinking water system downstream. Um, and then so we would take this knowledge to the community and say, okay, is this what you're experiencing? Is this your lived experiences? Does your water availability seem threatened? Has it been changing over time? If it's yes, then what does that look like to you? What are your experiences? Then these interviews and this different form of data through storytelling and, and exchange of ideas and information um, is then added you know, to the map. And we know where that information is coming from. So we know what that lived experience is of that community member that's downstream of the surface mine or the forest that's changing from, from climate change. That, that's one way we do it. And so we try to find indicators of change that then can be used to inform how different, how the relationship with water and natural resources is changing. Going to flooding, we have all these models that show where flood inundation um, has occurred and will occur. So then it's like, okay, well, is this your lived experience, uh, household number one? Um, if it's not your experience, what is your experience? And then try to take that information and turn that into data to inform um, the greater understanding of what the challenges are, but also what can we do with that to create more resilient communities? Who are your students? You know, like I have this this feeling that that a good portion of your students are also boaters, but I feel like that's probably a not accurate assumption. Who are your students that are coming in and working with you in the lab? Yeah, um, so we are uh, a land-grant institution Every state has a land-grant institution, and land-grant institutions were established to, to provide you know, common citizens with access to knowledge and learning, but also to innovation and, and, and problem-solving. And so land-grant institutions play a really important role because they're often less expensive than other colleges and universities that may be private or may be a little bit more elite. And so WVU um, is 
the university that many West Virginians come to to get degrees, you know, college degrees. Um, about half of our students come from West Virginia. Our other half of our students come from the surrounding area, you know, Maryland, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, um, Delaware. And so the students that are working in the Mount Hydrology Lab, many are from Appalachia and many are first generation students. They're the first people in their household to go to college. And West Virginia is a is a amazing, special, magical place. And many students want to stay here, but there's huge challenges around health and, and jobs and, and environment and risk. Um, and so the students that are coming um, from West Virginia to work in the lab and also work in the forestry and natural resources program are the ones that have a really keen understanding of the forests and of the watersheds. Uh, but they also understand that coal extraction and energy production and manufacturing and forest harvesting is what has allowed them to come to college, has permitted that opportunity to, to go to college. And so our students who are from Appalachia can, in a sense, kind of square up with this dichotomy of wanting to make change in a place that it feels impossible to make change. And so our students that are coming to study forest management are coming because they grew up in a logging family where they hunted and they foraged and they fished and they know the importance of healthy rivers and healthy waterways. Uh, but then we have students that are here because they know West Virginia is, is a special spot for outdoor recreation. And they want to come here to be able to uh, live the lifestyle of working hard and playing hard or harder. And so our students are are diverse in that sense of their kind of lived experiences. But the students that I work with, you know, they are passionate about forests, rivers, and watersheds, and they are eager, they are fired up to be agents of change to create the West Virginia um, that they want to live in, a West Virginia that keeps them here instead of having to go somewhere else to, to have this uh, these lives fulfilled. You sent me some some content. There's a map that focuses on some of the greater, more popular, well-known places in the country to go whitewater boating. Appalachia, the various reaches there, Arkansas, Michigan, Idaho, Colorado, California, the Pacific Northwest, um, I think a little bit in Texas, the Salt Basin in Arizona. I understand that you're doing work to identify how river flow and the impact on whitewater boating will change as climate change impacts rivers. Talk to us about that part of the research and, and what you're trying to identify in that. You know, West Virginia's economy for much of the last hundred years has been around coal and extraction. And again, it's provided lots of opportunities. It's put food on the table and it's powered the nation in, in, in many different ways. But we know that, you know, the economy is changing. And with these 21st century challenges, uh, you know, many people are rethinking of what the future could look like to ensure that whatever economies replace the coal economy are equitable, meet the needs of the people, provide opportunity. And one of the big challenges here in West Virginia and many states like West Virginia uh, is nobody has come to the table with what replaces coal jobs. You know, a, a average salary for a coal miner in West Virginia um, in the 80s and 90s and 2000s is probably about eighty to $90,000 a year. 
And so coal jobs and jobs like that are, are really important, but the world is changing. And so this map that I shared with you, it basically is the concentration of whitewater rivers in the U.S. Um, and working with Kevin Colburn at, at American Whitewater, we took the, uh, the National Whitewater Inventory and basically not only just plotted it in, in a map of the lower 48, but then we started looking at concentration of whitewater rivers throughout the country in the lower 48 in the contiguous U.S. You know, every state in the country has a whitewater run in the National Whitewater Inventory. And so we developed this map to engage with state legislatures here in West Virginia that has been, you know, exploring ways to diversify West Virginia's economy. We have something that other people do not have. And that is a high density of whitewater rivers that are close to roads that have access, you know, that allow people to engage with, um, that doesn't require permit process to take a three week, you know, float down, down the Grand Canyon or not get a permit at all. We can engage with our rivers whether you have two hours in your day or whether you have two weeks of vacation. Our rivers are accessible. And then the question became, well, Okay, so we have lots of rivers. How often can they be paddled? And then so we did this boatable days analysis. You know, on average, the upper Yak, Yakagani River, right over the border in, in Western Maryland, that runs 220 days per year. And that's solid class four whitewater with commercial whitewater operations on it. There are definitely class five moves on that river. And you know what? It flows under natural flow and also dam control in the summer. And so we started with our legislatures of talking about not only do we have a high concentration of whitewater rivers, but our whitewater rivers flow a lot. The Big Sandy, that class four, class five creek that I mentioned 30 minutes from my, my doorstep, that runs 182 days a year. World-class creeking you know, out the door. And so then the question became, okay, well, can we start thinking about, a, you know, a very strategic approach to developing and promoting whitewater economies in West Virginia um, and Appalachia? We know the world is changing through climate change. And so then it's like, well, how are these rivers expected to change over the next 50 years? And so this map represents that kind of thread of going around, okay, West Virginia needs economic diversity. What do we have that's unique that matches with how people want to spend their time and, and their money, but also where they want to live um, to access that resource? And then we projected that work into the future. And so this map that you're looking at you know, basically shows that West Virginia has the highest concentration of whitewater runs in the country. Have you noticed that outfitters or fly fishing guides have adjusted? Like, um, I can't remember which outfitter it is in Fayetteville, but they actually have the best of the day float. And so if you sign up for that, it's, it can be in the summertime. If the upper gully's flowing because of torrential rain downpour and you can show up in July, you can get a upper gully run, but they get to pick it based on the flows and the weather. Um, I think that's a really cool adjustment that people have started to make uh, up there. But have you seen other businesses make adjustments off of this kind of information that you're talking about? Um, so, no, I don't think our information is being used to make decisions. Um, this is relatively new work. We're learning what it means and um, how it can be used. And we're engaging with, you know, again, Friends of Cheat and West Virginia Rivers Coalition, um, 
and the Brad and Elise Outdoor Economic Development Collaborative here at, at WVU. We haven't gotten to the point of putting this information in the hands of, of operators and businesses yet. We are doing that and learning how to do that. And so, you know, in short, uh, companies are adjusting, businesses are adjusting. I don't think they're adapting because the 21st century is so uncertain. And that's where we hope our work and our engagement with the whitewater community and businesses and, and economies based on, on whitewater, um, that's where we want to go. We want to converge to be like, okay, this is how we see your world. This is how you see our world. Um, how can we form each other and create adaptation to changes in flows? And, and we hope to support them so they can adapt. Yeah. And let me add that if you are like, I, or we, or my communities and businesses need this information, we will get that information out to them so they can use it. That's, that's the end goal is to do meaningful work. And so let me know if you have an idea, let me know, and we'll get you this information and we will do analysis for you. Um, if it's helpful to, to, you know, if we haven't represented a river that's important to you or your community. Hey folks, this is Sam. Right now I'm driving a 2023 Nissan Rogue up a river canyon. Here we go. We're going to do some passing. This car is really strong and smooth with its transmission. It feels very powerful, very safe, and very steady. Easy to drive. Handles great. Has a small footprint in the lane, and yet it really feels like a big car. It's got big windows. I was driving it yesterday with four big guys. It handled the load great. It handled the space of us really well. This is the kind of car you can put your boats on the roof. You can load the back hatch with lots of river gear. The other thing I've noticed about this car is that it has an incredible turning radius. You can find your Denver area Nissan dealers online at www.nissanusa.com. Our sponsor today is AED One Stop Shop. AED One Stop Shop has been working with River Outfitters for 10 years, and they are providing a bulk order discount on their AED bundles right now that allows for complete deployment of AEDs throughout your River Outfitting company. AED One Stop Shop is a small business based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They carry all six brands of AEDs that are FDA approved. AED One Stop Shop is a national dealer for AEDs, and they work direct with manufacturers, providing lightweight and portable AEDs for specific needs, pediatric, adult, bilingual. To gain their bulk order discount, use the link in our show notes, on our website, or in our Instagram link tree to hit the landing page for AED One Stop Shop. You've identified all the whitewater stretches in the country and then have shown that some of the most dense options for whitewater boating are in Appalachia and in West Virginia. You're also looking at how things are changing. And you have this other set of maps you sent that are showing changes. But what are you seeing in, in how these changes will play out just for rivers in general and for all types of folks, but also then for the whitewater boating community? So we took uh, 152 whitewater runs throughout the country that we called like classic whitewater runs, like the Cheat, like the Yawk, the Colorado and Mackenzie and all these different rivers, the Pants, runs that people build their lives around. But then there are runs that people will travel to for, for vacation, right? The Middle Fork of the Salmon, for example. And so we developed this list of like 152 runs throughout the U.S. that are classic and had stream gauges on them. 
so we can look at how frequently they are boatable. And so we did this for these seven whitewater regions throughout the U.S., to compare like the sensitivity of whitewater in West Virginia to, to the rest of the country. And we used um, future forecasted climate and, and hydrology uh, based on different uh, future emission scenarios to understand what stream flow could look like in the future. And what we found was um, all whitewater rivers runs that we analyzed are changing and are being impacted by climate. Over the course of a year, um, some places are adding boatable days, other places are losing boatable days. Boatable days being defined on um, the minimum flows in order to like physically, realistically, and enjoyably paddle downstream in different types of crafts. Um, and so we started asking these questions around, okay, we know how things are changing across the year, but we know how important seasonality is. So we broke... Uh, the year down into winter, spring, summer, and fall, and started looking at how boatable days are changing in diff these different whitewater regions. When we look at those regions across seasons, what we see is the northeastern and intermountain west and the Pacific Northwest and California, those winter boating days are projected to increase over the 21st century. And that makes sense, right? More precipitation falling as rain instead of snow, uh, more rain melting snowpack, warmer winters. So many of these areas are expected to have more boating opportunities in, in the winter. And then the other thing that we found was um, throughout these whitewater regions, almost every place is losing boatable days in the summer because it's warmer, it's drier, Forests are using more water. Urban areas and households are using more electricity for air conditioning. And so we're losing boatable days in the summer under different future scenarios. But what's really cool for us here in, in central Appalachia is out of all these regions, the runs of central Appalachia, which nominally is like southwestern Pennsylvania, all of West Virginia and western Maryland, is we have the least amount of sensitivity to changes hmm. now and in the future. And so if we are successful in building an economy based on, on whitewater, which requires healthy rivers and healthy environments and, and healthy communities to support those businesses, West Virginia is a pretty awesome place to be over the next 50 years. Because as a boater, you know, our rivers are less sensitive to changes in climate. Um, but as a small business owner, um, there's less risk to think about what businesses could, could look like here. So you said that West Virginia is is one of the least sensitive. I have a couple questions with that. I guess my thought is like I hear you describe potential for more rain on snow. When I think of rain on snow, I think of intense flooding. Is is there a greater propensity than in that that region of Appalachia to have a new flood season, unexpected flooding that is potentially greater than what is known in the collective experience at this point? West Virginia has always flooded. Right. You know, we, going back to high concentration of, of, of whitewater runs in, in West Virginia, West Virginia is the 14th smallest state. Um, we're the 10th wettest state. 14th smallest based on? On area, on, okay. on geographic area of okay. the state. So we're a small state. Mm -hmm. But in that small state, we have over 54,000 miles of streams, creeks, and rivers. Mm. We are very mountainous. You know, we're called on our license plates. We're like the mountain state. And we receive a lot of rainfall, a lot of precipitation, snow and, and, and rain. 
Um, and when you look at our rivers, there's clear evidence that these things have been flooding forever, <laughs> for millennia. Um, the challenge is because there's such little flat land in West Virginia, most of our communities are built around waterways. Some of them are uh, have been built by you know coal companies and logging companies at the turn of the century, and they basically built a mine, built the roads into the mine, and then placed houses along the road so you know miners had had places to work. America's infrastructure, which was built and designed largely in the 20th century, was based on 20th century understanding of climate and river flows. And so in West Virginia, um, most of us live next to water. We're very wet. We're very steep. Um, and so it doesn't take much for somebody to be impacted by floods. But what we are seeing is increases in heavy rainfall. And increases in heavy rainfall in steep mountain environments with shallow soils uh, means the potential for, for more flooding. And so West Virginia actually has the highest flood risk um, in the U.S. Um, we're tied with Louisiana for flood risk, but they're getting their their floods from sea level rise and and hurricanes, whereas we, uh, for an inland state, have the highest flood risk because of how our communities have been developed along waterways um, and the lack of infrastructure to deal with this. Um, we may have more boating opportunities, but you know, if you don't boat and you live next to a river, that sucks. Um, and so again, it's how do we move the economy forward, but how do we also move people's health and security forward? And it's going to be really hard to mitigate our way out of more flooding. And so what this means is uh, we need to figure out how to adapt. How do we deal with a creek flooding more and inundating homes more? Um, and so that's a lot. Some of the other work that we're doing is how can we manage our forests to deal with more extreme rainfall? But how can we work with households to adapt to, to more floods? And so, yes, we are expecting more floods that happen more frequently. And I want to say that this isn't unique to West Virginia. Um, a recent analysis by the nonprofit Climate Central um, showed that heavy rainfall is increasing everywhere in the U.S. Pacific Northwest, the Northeast, the Southwest, Intermountain West, everywhere there's detectable increases in heavy rainfall. And here in West Virginia, a long-term climate station has showed that since the 1970s, hourly rainfall has increased by 28%. So in each hour that it's raining, hmm. there's more rainfall falling. You see the new river in the cheat and you can tell that they, they're they like built for floods. I mean, built by mother nature. And so I was wondering, do you guys look back on the past in your research? Is there a lot of, you know, trying to figure out then when the industrial revolution coal became giant is is that uh, one of the lines and then now as you see climate change you're you're looking at those different things from the past not just the future uh yes um we situate all of our work begins with the the past um now one of the challenges is um in order to describe the past one approach is to use streamflow records and if you don't have a stream gauge on a stretch of water um, going back in history, um, it's really hard to confidently say what 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 happened there. Um, and so we do for stream gauges that have long term records, we do look back in in time. In West Virginia, um, one of our longest stream gauges in the Potomac River Basin, which uh, of course flows to Washington D.C. in the Chesapeake Bay, headwaters are here in West Virginia. Um, you know, we have stream flow records going back to 1899 but they're very far and, and few between. And so we do look backwards. 
we've made a decision to not go as far back as the the 1900s because um, one thing that's been shown in a lot of the um, sociology work is, you know, people relate to what they've experienced. And when we start talking about floods that happened in the early 1900s, like Pittsburgh, you know, one of the reasons the national forest system was developed was because um, Pittsburgh kept flooding because the Cheat River watershed was deforested, you know, in the early 1900s. And so people relate to their lived experiences. And we've kind of found it doesn't really help to go back really far in time. But the other challenge with floods is um, there is a random element to floods. We don't know exactly when they're going to happen and where they're going to happen and how how big they are. And so it's hard to um, detect in a scientific way whether floods are increasing, um, especially in a place like West Virginia where we don't have a really long, long record. As you look at the randomness of flooding, the stuff that happened in like Maine, New Hampshire, a couple weeks ago. Is that something that you guys look into? It seems like it's mostly a lot of heavy rain with the snow melt that uh, already came through. Yes, very much so. We do try to understand um, what are the conditions in which flooding occurs and what do those conditions look like um, throughout the state and throughout the region. Um, What we are doing more so is accepting that things will happen and there are people working on why and how, um, what we're working on is what to do about it. And so the rain on snow events and the flooding um, in New England that's been experienced over you know these last several years, last 10 years really, you know, we would ask questions of like, okay, areas are gonna flood. We don't know when and where on how bad, but what we can do is build flood resilient communities. So when it, if and when it does happen, they can be prepared to 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 deal with that. You know, when you get eight to ten inches of rain that falls in two hours, which is what was experienced in eastern Kentucky in the summer of 2021, eight to ten inches of rain in the mountains over two hours is going to flood whether it's a Walmart parking lot or if it's an old growth forest. Communities downstream of that are vulnerable. You spoke about kind of central Appalachia being some of the least sensitive areas to these changes. What are you seeing as as some of the most sensitive rivers uh, regions to coming climate change, to, to active and coming climate change? Sure. The data that I shared, the analysis that I shared with you kind of uh, lumps everything by whitewater region. And so if we look at the future, our predictions show that um, in the winter, Idaho um, is projected to have the greatest increase in, in boatable days on their rivers. And again, I, I want to say we analyze like maybe 20, we try to analyze like 20 classic whitewater runs in these different whitewater regions. And so Idaho, California, and Colorado have potentially have the most to gain in winter in terms of boatable days. And that makes sense, right? More rain and more, more snow melt um, in the winter. But, you know, those same areas are also predicted to have the greatest loss of boatable days during the summer months. We know that the Intermountain West and and runs dependent upon the Cascades and Sierra. It's based on that snowpack that accumulated over the winter, then melts and runs downstream. And, you know, creaking season in the Sierra in the spring and early summer, uh, Colorado, all these places, right? That's that's the time to be there. But during the during the summer, our work shows that um, those uh, western mountain runs um, have the the most to, to lose from boatability, uh, simply because the water isn't available during the summer. 
you know, when these huge snowpacks happen, that's great, but reservoirs aren't designed to handle rapid runoff, you know, melt from these, these reservoirs. Um, the trees are thirsty and using water for longer time throughout the year. You know, 44 million people are dependent upon the Colorado River water, and we know that needs are not being met currently. And so that's what the winter looks like. Uh, you know, if you don't have a dry suit, get it and uh, get after it in, in the mountainous west. Um, and then, you know, in the summer, there could be some some pretty big challenges around access. Um, but the spring and fall creaking season is hurricane season in the fall and late winter and spring uh, rainfall for, for our creaking season. And so both the spring and the fall, um, you know, the future looks fairly similar to what we've known over the last 20 years. The conversation is around rivers and what's happening with climate change. You're also doing a lot of work with the Mountain Hydrology Lab, and it actually feels like almost primary work is to understand how these impacts affect communities. And I heard you say some of your work is to help communities become more flood resilient. What are the real preparations that river communities make to be ready for what's coming in the next few decades? Yeah. You know, the there's the National Flood Insurance Program that FEMA runs. And, it, you know, basically, if you live in a next to a river that um, has a 1% chance of flooding any given year, which is like a 26% chance happening in any given year of a 30-year mortgage, um, you have to have flood insurance. You can't get a mortgage without flood insurance. Well, that's great. But you know what? Um, the flood insurance program is based on rivers that have floodplains that flood. <laughs> so larger rivers. Um, and that's what we call a rivering flood. Um, in West Virginia, we have flash floods because we don't have floodplains. 85% of our 54,000 miles of waterways are small headwater creeks where there aren't floodplains. But what there is, is a road that's been blasted in to the hill slope that people build houses on or put trailers on. You know, when you run shuttle for the upper Gauley, um, here in West Virginia, you pass a lot of these communities dug into hill slopes along creeks that 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 flood. You know, there, there are households in West Virginia that have lived in the same holler for, for seven generations. And so the question then becomes of, okay, what the hell do we do about this? There is no, there is no guidebook and there is no right answer. Um, and so the work that we're doing around flooding and the looming flood challenges is really thinking about how do we adapt to more um, extreme events on, on rivers. And the goal at the end of each day is to save lives, save livelihoods, and then figure out a way to enhance livelihoods. So that kind of follows this thread of community flood planning and preparation um, through you know, thinking about alternative economies in Appalachia that are based on kind of reshaping this relationship with with water and, and, and resources. It's a, it's an immense challenge, though. It's very overwhelming. Who wants your information, Nico? Who Who is asking, like, you have this this great body of research you're doing, all this data on on rivers and flow and how it's changing these conversations with communities. And, and then all this also is a skill set that you and your students are learning on how to engage with communities and ask these questions and apply it. Who wants the information? Is it the communities that have been hit by the floods or is it the communities that feel like it's coming? It, it, you know, so is it a, like a, a, a reactive or is it a proactive desire for your information? Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's really both. I, I get calls from, from individuals that say my house flooded. Um, what, what do I do about it? 
we work with the West Virginia State Resiliency Office and and um, Environmental Management Division and, and Homeland Security, and so we work with them and and you know provide skills and our expertise to to them. So we're really working across society as a whole, um, you know, from individuals to organizations and institutions that are mandated with governance of society, really. And so we're really working across that spectrum. Um, but there's also only so many of us. And so, um, you know, we are not the people to call when you've been flooded. We don't respond. We're not equipped to respond to floods. We are focused on mostly planning and preparation to, at different timescales from, from now into the future of what to do about this grand challenge of, of, of flooding. Um, and so one of the ways that we navigate these scales across individuals and households up to like government, you know, agencies and, and institutions is uh, we do work closely with, with nonprofit groups and the two groups that I do most of my work with is the West Virginia Rivers Coalition, which is a statewide water advocacy group that was, you know, founded by whitewater enthusiasts, but is has evolved into probably the most important water advocacy group in in the state. Um, and then also working with Friends of Cheat, which uh, you know is our local watershed, and working with them to you know support them in their mission, um, but also to engage with their their stakeholders, and so. We are focused on the knowledge production around planning and preparation and adaptation. As a professor, as a researcher, as a teacher, where where do you think that young people can can engage with rivers? If they want to do it through boating, that's great, but maybe they also want to do it through research or through projects for their community. Talk talk about that for a minute, will you? Like, what's the value of engaging in river education and the different ways that people can do it? Because I think we often think that it's only through recreation. You're obviously doing something different. Feel free to advocate for your school and kids coming to your place, but maybe talk about other awesome research and university opportunities that, that young people can, can look into yeah. for their own life. There are lots of great colleges and universities that have water programs. Uh, there's there's no doubt about it. And I can name a bunch of them. But what I think is most exciting about what we're doing here at, at WVU is really situating our learning around um, a passion for rivers. You know, when I realized, uh, being somebody that never planned on going to college, when I realized that I could have a career around water and rivers, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, why didn't anybody tell me this in elementary school? Like, I would have learned math in elementary school, if I knew that math described how water flows, <laughs> you know, like I would have been on board. And so there are lots of schools that offer degrees and training around water. Um, there are amazing youth programs um, around water. But what's really exciting about what we're doing here at, at WVU, at West Virginia University, and in my program, which, by the way, we're developing a new pathway called environmental conservation, we are working with the River Management Society to host their River Studies and Leadership Certificate. You know, that's RMS's goal is to create river managers and scientists and advocates and, and practitioners, people who are passionate about rivers for all sorts of different reasons, and developing a pathway for them to fulfill their professional um, goals that involve rivers. 
And so our program here at WVU um, is very much, we just adopted the River Studies Leadership Certificate, working with River Management Society um, as a pathway to you know, provide students a means of, of working around rivers in the way that they engage with rivers. You know, you could be a, a, an angler, you could be a boater, you could be somebody that has grew up on spring water on your farm. <laughs> you know, there are all these different ways to engage with river and to create river knowledge. Um, and so the River Management Society has the River Studies Leadership Certificate, I think at like 12 different institutions throughout the country with West Virginia being a new addition. Um, and programs that are hosting the River Studies Leadership Certificate are doing learning a different way, a way that places the students in and on and around rivers and river communities and river policy and river science and river advocacy. And so for, you know, for the, the college-bound student that wants to work around rivers to be able to live a life of passion, both professionally and personally, I would recommend them going to the River Management Society webpage for the River Studies and Leadership Certificate and seeing where those schools are. You know, Colorado Mesa University over there in uh, Grand Junction has a program. University of Tennessee is on board. There are schools in Virginia, North Carolina, you know, uh, various places, Oregon, like lots of different places. But there's so many options out there. Um, that I think if the if a student wants to um, live the life of rivers academically and professionally and also personally, I think a way to constrain all of the various options is to check out what River Management Society is, is doing. There are lots of great programs, and I am particularly fired up about what we have going on here because um, it's all about creating um, you know problem solvers for the 21st century around rivers. Well, Nico, I, I always like to just close it with, is there anything else you want to talk about that you don't feel like we're rolling into this whole conversation today? I want to give a couple of, you know, shout outs to uh, groups and endeavors here in West Virginia that are really moving the needle around river conservation and management and, and healthy environments. And again, West Virginia Rivers Coalition is doing incredibly important work. You know, I ask that um, any river lovers should be looking at an organization like Rivers Coalition and figuring out how to support them in their community, but also other communities. Uh, Friends that cheat, um, you know, it's it's a guiding it's a guiding uh, star for 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 many of us. And so to check out the Friends that cheat story, especially uh, the Cheat River Festival. But the other thing I'd also like to highlight is. Um, that there's a wonderful outdoor magazine, a small shop outdoor magazine here in West Virginia called uh, Highland Outdoors. Dylan and Nikki, who who run that magazine, are just doing amazing work um, through storytelling um, of documenting the potential and the magic of, of West Virginia and, and the region. And so if listeners are interested in learning more uh, about West Virginia and seeing West Virginia through this lens of of rivers and forests and and nature and and solidarity and culture, um, Highland Outdoors is a great magazine to check out, and you can look at issues online. And uh, I think it's important for us to uh, you know to change the narrative on on you know what people believe West Virginia is. Um, but again, if you don't get it, um, just stay where you're at. <laughs> right on. Well, Nicholas Zeg, associate professor of forest hydrology, director of the Mountain Hydrology Lab. Nico, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been it's been super interesting. I could keep talking to you for a long time and I hope to I hope to carry on the conversation in various ways. 
Awesome. Really grateful for the opportunity uh, to be here and uh, really think that River Radius is playing an important, important role in, in documenting, but also, you know, sharing stories. So uh, thanks. A West Virginia size thank you goes out to Nico Zeg and the Mountain Hydrology Lab for joining us today on the River Radius. Nico mentioned a lot of different organizations, including the Highland Outdoors magazine. We have links for all of these organizations and businesses in the show notes here in your podcast player. Those notes are also on the episode page on our website and in our postings on Instagram. Our co-host today is Dylan Pinnock from River Company Outfitters. Thanks for joining us, Dylan. You can check out his work on Instagram, TikTok, and his website. He is producing a great portal into the modern river culture of Appalachia. Today's episode is sponsored by AED One Stop Shop. They are providing outfitter and volume discounts on their products on these AEDs. Use the link in our show notes or on the sponsor page on our website or in our link tree. And today's episode is also sponsored by the Denver area Nissan dealers. I drive a Nissan. It's the best vehicle I've ever owned. Their link is in our show notes. All River Radius social media is produced by Samantha Sice. All River Radius music comes from the lap steel guitar of Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. If you don't boat and you live next to a river, that sucks. If anybody calls, I'm just going to say, I took a nap. Most of our steep creeks in this part of the world are driven by high-intensity rainfall. We, we are officially done with the interview. Super dope.